Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hello, this is Lenny Goldberg, and it's going to be Bombs Away with the Jewish Truth Bomb. You know, this week we begin the book of Exodus, and we're introduced to Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest Jewish leader of all times. And since we're always searching for leaders to lead us, let's take a look at the greatest leader of them all, Moshe Rabbeinu. What do we see in our Pasha of the week? What makes him so great? Well, you'd say, I know, he got the Torah at Sinai. He spoke to Hashem face to face. Yeah, but way before that, we see him in our Pasha. The first thing we see, Moses as a grown-up, it says like this in Exodus chapter 2, verse 10, and it came to pass when Moses was grown up that he went out to his brothers and saw their suffering and he saw an Egyptian man beating a Hebrew and he turned, he saw there was nobody looking and he smote the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. So that's the first thing that the Bible records that Moshe did. Now the very next verse, and Moses went out the next day. He saw two Jews fighting and he said to them, hey, why are you hitting your fellow Jew? And they said back to him, who made you a judge over us? What, are you going to kill us like you just killed the Egyptian? So the verse says that after that, Moses realized that the thing was known and he takes flight from Egypt and he lands in Midian. So the very next verse, he's in Midian and he sees shepherds bothering these girls and he drives these bully shepherds away. Okay, so what do we see? Before Moses even learned a letter of Torah, way, way before that, we see what kind of person he is. He is someone that cannot sit idly by when he sees injustice. He sees an Egyptian beating a Jew. He kills that Egyptian. And by doing so, he jeopardizes his position as prince of Egypt. He had the good life in the palace. He was also helping the Jewish slaves, convincing Paro to legislate all kind of laws to give the Jews a Shabbos, to give the Jews a day of rest. He was able to get Shabbos for them. And that's one of the reasons we say on Shabbat, Yismach Moshe Kimat Nat Chalko. Yeah, Moses gave us the Shabbos as a day of rest. So he was doing things for the Jewish people from his high position. He had all the reason to look the other way and not get involved. And then the very next day, the very next verse, he sees two Jews fighting. Stay out of it, Moses. After all, you just killed the Egyptian. You got to lay low. But no, he's out there chastising these two Jews. And then when he flees Egypt, the very next verse, He's got a price on his head. He's wanted. Instead of keeping a low profile, he helps those girls who are getting bullied at the well by the shepherds. So notice how he can't just sit idly by. That's how the Torah here is portraying Moshe Rabbeinu as we meet him for the first time. Somebody who just can't sit by quietly. He solves each problem differently though. When it's a Gentile hitting a Jew, he kills that Gentile. When it's two Jews fighting, he doesn't kill anybody. They're Jews but he does the mitzvah tochacha, he rebukes them. And when he's in Midian and Gentiles are attacking other Gentiles, he doesn't reprove. He doesn't have to kill anybody. No need for that. But he solves the problem. He shoes away the bullies. So they leave those girls alone. One of those girls became his wife, Zipporah. But he didn't know that. But the point is, he gets involved. He has empathy. And again, this is way before he got the Torah. This is what made him worthy of receiving Torah. This is what made him a vessel to receive Torah. Now, at this point, not only is Moses not involved with Judaism too much, 
someone familiar with the traditions, with Judaism, with Jewishness. At this point, he barely knows he's a Jew. He's described as an Ishmitri, an Egyptian. The daughter of Yitro describes him as a Ishmitri, an Egyptian man, and he doesn't deny it. So this is way before he stood with Hashem. He became Moshe Rabbeinu because of this. This is what made him worthy. And so I bring this up, and this is one of the reasons we want to learn Bible. It's to get an understanding. What is a true Jewish leader after all? It's about caring. Avat Yisrael, love of Jews. It's about humility. The Jewish leaders, they were humble, like Saul, like David, like Moses. The Midrash says that when Sipporah came back to tell her father Yitro, wow, we were just saved by this great guy. Not only is he brave and strong, but he took our buckets and he drew water from the wells for us. And he was dressed in elite clothes of a prince of Egypt. And look what he did for us. So the humility is a major feature of Moshe Rabbeinu. As a matter of fact, it says in the Torah, he was the most humble man of all. Now, when we look at leaders today, they're the opposite of humble. They got to brag about all the things they did in order to get elected. I did this, I did that. And of course, the most important feature today of a leader, he's got to be a great speaker, you know? That's the criteria we use. In our superficial minds, somehow, if you're a good speaker, that makes you a good leader. The great late Jackie Mason used to talk about this all the time. You hear people say, what a speaker, as if that's what really counts. And by the way, that's what makes B.B. so popular. You know, B.B. is considered out there one of the greatest leaders of all time. He's up there in people's minds like Winston Churchill. And I'll tell you why most people think that way, because he's a great speaker. It's not the things he's done, but he's a great speaker in both languages. He can run for president of the United States and win. That's how good a speaker he is. And in people's minds... That's what makes you a great leader. But think about it. Would you choose a dentist because he made a good speech? Let's say he's a horrible dentist. You walk out of there, your teeth are destroyed. He's destroyed your mouth. But you say, but what a speaker. Wow, he gave such a great speech. Or would you choose a plumber because he's a good speaker? No, you want a guy to fix your toilet. Guy who's competent. What does speaking ability have to do with it? So why is it that when it comes to the leader of a country, when you have to solve real problems, when you have to possess abilities... Suddenly, what a speaker. That's how you measure him. Is that the criteria? You know, it says in our Pasha that Moses was a terrible speaker. He says to God in our Pasha, Lo ish I'm not a man of words. Yeah, but he had character. That's what the Bible teaches us about the great leaders. You want a good speaker? Obama, Clinton, they were great speakers. They had terrible character, but they got elected because they knew how to campaign. They knew how to speak. You know who speaks great? A used car salesman. They're terrific speakers. Would you want them to lead your country? So that's why we have to learn Bible. We want to learn about the Moseses, the Davids, the Sauls. We want to learn the makeup of a true leader. And if you want to learn Bible properly, you can listen to my podcast, Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes. It's a podcast on Anchor. It's on Spotify. Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes. And there I give over in the book of Kings, in the book of Samuel, all about Jewish leadership, all about being a Jew in the land of Israel before the exile, because that's what the Bible basically is. What was it like before exile? What were people like then? We see the image of the scholar warrior, somebody like Moses. He smites that Egyptian and he brings the Torah down from Sinai. That's the combination of a great Jewish leader. Humility, Torah, and when necessary, he knows how to fight. And, you know, speaking of scholar warriors, this month it was the Yortzeit the memorial of Binyamin and Tali Kahana on Hei Tevet. Binyamin was murdered with his wife Talia between the settlements of Ofra and Betel driving their car. It was exactly 22 years ago. 
And Binyamin Kahana, he was the son of Rabbi Meir Kahana. And I was fortunate to be very close to him. And I translated all of his articles and lectures in English. I really saw that he had talent and I wanted the English world to know about it. He was a prolific writer and I wanted to read something that he wrote. But before I do, I want to mention that he was under constant harassment from the Israeli authorities, nonstop. He was my neighbor. He lived a couple of houses for me in Kratapur. So I saw the cop cars near his house all the time. He was arrested constantly. He was convicted of sedition for a flyer he wrote. I mean, I could go on and on about what the Shabak and the police did to him, what they put him through. But what's more important is that you know why they harassed him. He didn't have any weapons. He barely had a movement to lead because his movement, Kahana Chai, was outlawed already in 1994. So why did the Israeli authorities go after him so hard? What were they afraid of? Well, the fact that his name was Kahana had something to do with it. He once wrote that if he did absolutely nothing but stay at home and put up a sign in front of my house saying, I'm continuing the way of my father, that would be enough for the Israeli authorities to hound him. Just his Kahana name made him a walking and talking terrorist organization. But I'll tell you why they persecuted Binyamin Kahana. Because he did have a weapon. He had dynamite in his pen. The ideas that were in his head, he was harassed because of that. And in his weekly Pasha sheets, where he also wrote a lot of political commentary, where he cut through all the bull like a laser through butter, that's what scared the authorities. Because we have today an ideological battle. And he was able to express on paper what's really going on. So I want to read to you something he wrote about 25 years ago, which is as relevant as ever. It's something he wrote when he was in Masiao prison under judicial persecution in 1999. And like his father, he wrote some of his best stuff from the prison. And the name of the article is, Who Really Rules in Israel? And basically what he's saying here is that we have a cultural war going on in Israel. And it doesn't really matter who becomes the prime minister or who makes up the government, because it goes beyond the government. You got the judiciary, you got the media, you got academia, and they're the ones who set the tone. And so I want to read part of it because it's kind of what's going on today, that yeah, we have the government. Yeah, we have a right-wing government, looks good, good people there. On the other hand, it's not necessarily the government that runs the show. So let me read part of this. The name of the article is Who Really Rules in Israel? And he explains at the beginning, why is it that all these right-wing Israeli governments that have been established, they don't really do what they got to do. They don't clean house with the hate-filled state-run broadcast industry. They allow the judicial system to just undermine its authority in the name of judicial activism and so forth. What's going on? So he explains like this. Within the last two decades, we have witnessed the rise within the state of Israel of a marginal extreme left characterized by desperate efforts to eliminate the Jewish character of the state and by venomous hatred towards anything that even hints at Judaism or Jewish nationalism. For anyone who has seen this group, no further description is necessary. Despite their efforts, it has become apparent even to them that they have no chance of achieving their goals through normal democratic means for reasons that they can't understand and despite their frantic efforts to manipulate public opinion through the media that they control, the people have stubbornly refused to see the light and have remained, at least in their basic instinct, Jewish. This being the case, instead of investing their energy in the political arena, they have found a safer and cleaner way to achieve their goals. And that's basing their power on the Supreme Court and the state prosecutor's office. The Supreme Court, which on one hand is not democratically elected, and on the other hand, almost 100% reflects their ideas of political correctness, is the perfect vehicle for them to wield control through. 
Thus, the charade of democracy is played out, a meaningless illusion of elections in which the public chooses between two ideologically vapid and indistinguishable parties, while in the background, in shrouded chambers, this little group is working to entrench their power. I'll skip a little bit. I don't want to read the whole thing. In this way, this minuscule band of haters, whose public support is almost non-existent, is able to exert their authority while being freed of any obligation to present their policies before public election. Well-connected within the judicial system and the media, their influence is felt through the upper echelons of all organs of power in the state, the army, the security services, the police, the cultural world in which they alone decide what is acceptable and what is taboo and so on. So what Benjamin is saying here is that the government of Israel is mere fiction and what's really calling the shots is the judiciary, the army, the security forces, with the mass media being their propaganda piece. And they set the tone for what's going to happen in Israel. Okay, now listen to this. Benjamin wrote this article in 1999. And Bibi, Benjamin Netanyahu, became the prime minister in 1996. And it was also a very right-wing government in 1996. So it says like this. Before the elections, representatives from Arushever, Dear Zeke, he met with Benjamin Netanyahu. And Netanyahu said that he promised that if elected, everything will be okay. He'll take care of the media. He'll allow Arucheva to broadcast from the shores, etc. And so Adirzik asked him, wait a minute, you were in power for 17 years and you didn't take care of the media? And Netanyahu answered him, yeah, we headed the government, but we weren't in power. Now we'll be in power. So Benjamin writes here, Netanyahu, a smart man, understood that one could head the government yet not be in power. Anyway, there's a lot more to the article. It's very, very interesting and important. But what's interesting now going on in the news related to this Every day in the news, they're reporting on the demonstrations and the outrage from the left for the new government's push to what they call overhaul or remake the judiciary. You got these lawyers in the streets with their black robes demonstrating this new government's reforms. So this is a good sign that they're trying to make a crack into the judiciary elite. And what are they doing? Well, the new justice minister, his name is Yariv Levin, he wants to hand more powers to members of the Knesset to anoint judges instead of the way it was where judges were appointed by a panel of magistrates and lawyers and politicians under the supervision of the justice ministry. Levin wants it to be kind of like what goes on in America. The judges are picked basically by the politicians, by the government, not by a panel of elitists, most of whom are extreme leftists in the mold of merits. And notice merits that left-wing party they didn't even get into the Knesset in the last elections. The people don't even want them. But the judges can continue to be liberal leftists because nobody voted for them. So that's what they're trying to change here. The other thing that Levin is trying to change is that he's proposing an override clause, which would allow the Knesset to annul a Supreme Court decision with a majority vote. So it's taking some of the power from the Supreme Court. And you got to see the headlines in all the newspapers bashing this government for trying to do that. It's the end of democracy. And so again, the left and those lawyers with their black robes, they're going absolutely bonkers about these new laws that this government wants to install because it's so important for them to control the universities, the cultural institutions, and the judicial system and Supreme Court. That's key for them. And this new government is trying to infringe on that. And that's why you see demonstrations in the streets against these judicial reforms of the new government. You're touching their sanctuary. The court belongs to them and their radical leftist view. Now, this has been tried in the past. There are past right-wing governments that try to change something in the Israeli judiciary. 
but they backed down each time because they didn't want to be labeled by the media as marginal extreme right-wing fanatics. This government seems to have more confidence, and it looks like they're trying to take on, in a small way, the ruling clique. Because it's not that past governments didn't have the ability to throw out this clique and run the country properly. The problem is that our elected officials usually are totally lacking in ideology. They didn't have the faintest idea or plan how to drag the country out of the swamp it's mired in, and they didn't make it a high priority to do so, especially when they can quietly enjoy the perks of their limited authority. And that's why for all these years, we've had right-wing governments, but they become a supporting prop of the controlling left-wing Hellenist clique. And we have to hope that this government really wages a war against this clique. Because for so many years, it's they who've been making the rules. In back rooms, they were deciding the legality of settlements, the future of radio stations like Arut Sheva, the future and well-being of the Jews of Hebron, the Temple Mount, which is off limits. They have the last word on all basic religious matters. The makeup of the religious councils, the conversion law, kashrut laws, Shabbos laws, all these critical issues, they're determining. So it's really the judiciary that determines the very character of the state. And they have the media as their mouthpiece to decide what will become the main item in the news headlines, who will be taught and feathered in the media for going beyond the bounds of what is permitted. And they do it all in the most sophisticated intellectual fashion under the guise of rule of law, so that anyone who presumes to criticize their objectivity, so to speak, they're mocked and ridiculed by the media as an outcast and an ignoramus. And that's what's happening right now to this government. And they just have to hold their own, keep going, and not pay attention to all the noise and the static around them. Moving on to a subject that's got to alarm every Jew out there in the exile. And notice I never say the word diaspora. That's a mealy-mouthed word. It's the galut, it's the exile. And every Jew should be alarmed at the virulence of the Jew hatred today in America. And my man, Steve Miller, just sent me a video. And you have scenes of students on U.S. campuses chanting for a violent uprising against Jews. So Jew hatred is on the rise and everybody knows it. So you could say, well, those are crazy kids on campus. But if you look beneath the video at the comments there, the tweets, the comments against the Jews, they're not favorable towards the Jews, to say the least. So in America, under the surface, you have a powder keg waiting to explode and the Jews just have to come home. America was great for us. Maybe the best exile the Jew has ever known, but it's over. Just like in Alparsha, the comfortable exile of Eretz Goshen, it also ended quite abruptly. Things were going pretty great there in Eretz Goshen, but in a few verses, the Jews were enslaved. And there's an ironclad rule, we know, that the more comfortable that the exile is, the worse it ends. And the example they give is in Egypt. The sages compare it to a thorn bush where the thorns are turned inwards. It's easy to put your hand in, but then you can't take it out. And that's what happened in Egypt. They welcomed the Jews. They were proud to have Yosef and his brothers there and the family of Yaakov. It was great for them. And it became a very comfortable exile. And that's why it ended badly. And that's why America is going to end badly. If you look at the exile of the Sephardi Jews in Morocco, in Yemen, in Iraq, they didn't have it as good. They weren't as comfortable and therefore their exiles didn't end so badly. So there's a direct relationship between the comfort of your exile and how severe it implodes on you. And America has had it good for a long time. And if you can't see this coming, then you got to be blind. So come home to Israel. Yeah, we got our problems. I talk about them all the time in this podcast, but I'd much rather be here than over there any day. You know, one of the most sensitive subjects that's come up over the years in Israel is the question of 
what they call siruf pkuda, refusing orders. That is, is a soldier allowed by halacha, by Jewish law, to refuse orders from his commander? Certainly it's against the secular law, but what does Judaism say about it? You know, every time soldiers are sent into dismantle a settlement or some hilltop, this question arises. For instance, during the Gush Katifa demolition, it was a major question, especially in the Torah world, because you have a religious nationalist soldier, and they're the most gung-ho of all the idea of soldiers, the religious national ones, the ones with the keepers on that come from the settlements. And he's given an order now to dismantle a settlement, which is something that goes against his entire value system. Should he obey the order? After all, if we have soldiers refusing orders, there'll be anarchy. So this is a huge subject, and I want to just touch upon it by referring to our Torah Parsha, where we have, for the very first time, a situation of Seruf Pkuda, refusing orders. What happens? Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he gives an order. He tells the midwives, Shifra and Pua, while you are helping the Jewish women give birth, if you see that they give birth to a son, then kill him. But if it's a daughter, you can let her live. So what happens in the next verse? It says in Exodus chapter 1, verse 17, But the midwives feared Hashem. And they refused to do what the king of Egypt told them to do. So here we go. They refused the order. They said, it's an unethical order. I'm not carrying it out. And the verse continues, they did not do what the king of Egypt ordered. They saved the children from dying. So we see that these two righteous women refused the orders and they risked their lives. In the very next verse, it says the king of Egypt is really angry. He says to them, why did you do that? Why did you let the boys live? And they made up an excuse. They said that the Jewish women are so unbelievable. They give birth without us. They don't need us. So that's okay. You can lie. You don't have to die over it. But they refuse the order. But they don't have to get themselves killed now. And wait a minute. Isn't this Martin Luther King week? Isn't that what he did? He broke the law and he's a hero for it. So of course it's a mitzvah not to carry out an unethical law. And I want to end with this. You know, 7-Eleven opened in Tel Aviv this week. And it's kind of weird. On Dizagov Center, the first 7-Eleven, there's going to be a whole bunch of them, but they opened the first one. And the Israelis, they flocked. I mean, there were lines outside. You could see the pictures of customers lining up to go to 7-Eleven for that opening of 7-Eleven in Tel Aviv. And for me, it's just a little hard to understand the excitement. I don't know. Isn't 7-Eleven just a convenience store? It's not that special. It's not like they're opening up a Carvel ice cream or a Dunkin' Donuts. I would wait in line for that. But seriously, you probably have to attribute this overexcitement to the fact that this is something from America, you know? For the secular Israeli, that's the big attraction, to get a taste of America. Well, let me tell you something. Just because that it's from America, that doesn't make it automatically something wonderful. Okay, yeah, 7-Eleven, they have Slurpees. So everyone is waiting online for a Slurpee? These are grown people. I can understand little kids lining up for it, but I mean, grow up. Now, I never had a Slurpee, but I'm sure I can get the same kind of thing in a lot of places in Israel. The Barad, they sell Barad and other good stuff like that all over the place. You get that anywhere. Ah, but this is from 7-Eleven. I don't know, maybe a Slurpee is better than Barad. When I was a kid, we had snow cones. They sold in the candy stores. You know what? If they opened up a candy store with egg creams and lime rickies, I'd be waiting in line for that too. That's it for me. Don't forget to tune in to my Bible classes. Anyone interested in learning the Bible the way it should be taught, you can catch me at Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes. It's a podcast on Anchor. We'll see you next week.
you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at israelnewstalkradio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dachs, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dachs from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 